You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 11. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Thou art our shepherd, we are thy flock. Thou art our redeemer, we are the people thou hast bought back. Thou art our God, we are thine inheritance. Therefore, be not angry against us to correct us in thy wrath. Recall not our iniquity to punish it, but chastise us gently in thy kindliness. Because of our demerits, thine anger is inflamed, but be mindful that thy name is called upon among us, and that we bear thy mark and badge. Undertake, rather, the work that thou hast already begun in us by thy grace, in order that the whole earth may recognize that thou art our God and Savior. Amen. This little chart on the, on the board, perhaps... Uh, will review for us uh, where we are. In some ways, the treatment of Christ Calvin gives in in Book 2, Chapters 6 through 16, is really the heart of the Institutes. One writer has called it the nerve center of the Institutes. And all of Book 1 and first five chapters in book two lead up to Christ. Book one does tell us what we would have known about God if we had not sinned, but Adam did sin and we fell into sin, and that requires a redeemer. And the first five chapters of book two uh, discuss in some detail uh, the effects of that sin uh, upon us. And then we come to Christ in book two, chapters six through 16, actually that should be 6 through 17, you can correct that, 2, 6 through 17, and from this section will flow uh, books 3 and 4. Book uh, 3 has the title, The Way in Which We Receive the Grace of Christ. So we go right from book two, Christ, who he is, what he did, into book three, which we'll begin next time, and we'll study the way in which we receive the grace of Christ. And then book four is the external means or aids by which God invites us into the society of Christ. So in a sense, you can see everything leading up uh, to these chapters in book two and then everything flowing from these chapters in book two. We've already noted that that Calvin divides his treatment of Christ into person of Christ in 2, 12 through 14, and work of Christ in 2, 15 through 17, but uh, he doesn't um, insist on a hard and fast distinction. When we talk about person of Christ, we necessarily talk about the work of Christ and when we talk about the 
work of Christ, we certainly have to keep in mind the person of Christ. Calvin's uh, way of beginning his treatment of the work of Christ uh, is to do it under the threefold office. Threefold office of prophet, king, and priest. It's a little more common uh, for us to think of prophet, priest, and king. But uh, Calvin's order is prophet, king, and priest. I'm not absolutely sure about this, but I think he arranges it that way so that his treatment of Christ as priest could lead right into his treatment of Christ as redeemer in book 2, chapter 16 and 17. We talk about uh, this uh, threefold office for a bit, looking at the work of Christ as prophet, king, and priest. Calvin was not the first person to think of this, this idea of describing the work of Christ uh, under this rubric had been used for a long time, back in um, the days of the church fathers, and um, find it in Thomas Aquinas as well, and many other people. The idea was gradually developed by Calvin in the Institutes. By 1545, there's a clear uh, statement of the three offices. In 1536, it doesn't appear, but by the 1545 edition of the Institutes, you do see the three offices and then in 1559, uh, the edition that we're using, uh, there's a separate chapter devoted to the three offices, chapter 15 of book 2. And it has an important location between Calvin's discussion of the incarnation in 2:12 through 14 and his discussion of redemption into 16 through 17. So, as I said uh, already, it connects the person and work. It is Calvin's way of putting together the person who came, born in this world, and the work that he did, which eventually Calvin focuses on as the work of redemption, prophet, king, and priest. And as we'll see, the concepts that Calvin develops there are proclamation, protection, and reconciliation. Prophet, proclamation, king, protection, and priest, reconciliation. The uh, threefold office uh, also uh, has a significant role in Reformed theology after Calvin. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, of Christ the Mediator, puts it this way, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king. I think uh, one of the reasons that uh, this threefold office has become popular and useful in theology is that in the Old Testament, the prophet, priest, and the king were inducted into office by anointing with holy oil. So each one was anointed with oil to be inducted into office, which foreshadowed a fulfillment of the anointed one 
who is the Messiah himself. Messiah is the anointed one. And uh, we have these pictures of the work of the Messiah uh, in the Old Testament under the threefold uh, office. So let's uh, look at uh, these three offices, beginning with a prophet or proclamation. Calvin says Christ was anointed by the Spirit to be the herald and witness of the Father's grace. Christ, in his work, is a teacher, a preacher, or as Calvin puts it here, the herald and witness of the Father's grace. And there are two uh, parts uh, to that. Christ uh, taught during his earthly ministry, as we know. Calvin speaks of the perfect doctrine he has brought, has made an end to all prophecies. 2.15.2, the perfect doctrine he has brought, has made an end to all prophecies. It's the finality of Christ's preaching. Old Testament prepares for it. And then Christ gives the final word. Of course, that word is set forth and explained more fully in the remaining books of the New Testament after the Gospels. But God finally spoke in his son. And that sums up and underscores all biblical revelation. So during his earthly ministry, Christ was teaching. But uh, Calvin also stresses that he still teaches. It's not just that he taught while he was here on earth, but as prophet, he still teaches. His office of a prophet has not uh, ceased because he continues to teach through his ministers. Christ still teaches, not in his flesh, as he did in the days when he lived on earth, but he continues to teach through his ministers. 2.15.2, he received the anointing as prophet, not only for himself that he might carry out the office of teaching, but for his whole body that the power of the Spirit might be present in the continuing preaching of the gospel. So as we listen to sermons and as we preach, Christ is involved in that. In fact, it's his prophetic office that continues as his word is set forth. When Calvin was writing his commentary on Matthew 17.5, he said the words, Hear ye him, recall the church to its unique teacher, Christ. That's what sermons are. Hear ye him. And Christ now preaches through the mouths of his servants who proclaim his word. His office of prophet continues. Commentary on Matthew 28:20. His ministers cannot put forward whatever they may think, but must themselves depend solely on the mouth of one teacher. Of course, that commits us to the exposition of, of the scripture, because that is the word of Christ. And as we proclaim the scripture, we're not putting forth what we think, but uh, we're putting forth what 
God says. Just reading on the plane coming back last night, an article in which a minister was describing uh, the preaching of, of various uh, groups. He said that the Jews have to say uh, it's written in the in the Torah. And uh, Catholics say, the church says, and Protestants say, it seems to me. And he agreed with that. He thought that was a good way to describe Protestant preaching, but it seemed to me that that was a very poor way to describe Protestant preaching. It's never, it seems to me, it has to be the Bible says. And when we set forth what the Bible says, we're setting forth what Christ says. Of course, we have to interpret the Bible, and there's, a, there's an element there of uh, personal understanding and appropriation, but we work very, very hard to eliminate the, it seems to me, and to elevate the uh, truth of the Bible. So, Christ is a prophet, and as prophet, he proclaims uh, the truth of God. Secondly, uh, Christ is king, the second of the threefold offices, Christ is king. Calvin says, 2.15.3, Christ was anointed king that he might be the eternal protector and defender of his church. Two points here as well. One, Christ rules now. Christ is king now. He's ruling now. And as he rules now, he does two things. He protects believers. He is our king. He is protecting us. This, of course, raises the question as to why do we then have so many problems and uh, suffer and uh, die like other people. And Calvin's answer to that is, the happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in outward advantages, 2.15.4. He's our king, and so he's protecting us, but he hasn't promised to keep us from trouble, keep us from disease, or keep us from death. He hasn't um, promised that our lives will be easy. That's not what it means that uh, we have Christ as our king doesn't consist in outward advantages. The kingship of Christ is truly spiritual, Calvin says. In fact, it's life under the cross. So Christians can be prepared for suffering and trials and, humanly speaking, uh, disasters. Life under the cross. So he is king, but... We have to interpret that in the right way. We have to interpret that as a spiritual kingship, not an earthly one in which he's going to give us outward advantages. As king, he gives us inward advantages, blessings to overcome the trials, not uh, the absence of trials. So he's ruling now, protecting believers, the eternal protector and defender of his church, Calvin says. And he's ruling now, judging the wicked. So Christ as king is active in this world, 
protecting believers and judging uh, the wicked. But again, as in protecting believers, we have to understand that judging the wicked doesn't mean that there is total and complete judgment in this life. The wicked get away with a lot of things, seemingly. And even though we can sense some judgment of God upon the wicked, uh, we don't see God annihilating the wicked or destroying them. Uh, They often prosper and persecute uh, the righteous. I was reading in a book this sentence, which I think illustrates what I want to say here. The judgments of God fall often enough in this world to let us know that God judges. Judgments of God fall often enough in this world to let us know that God judges. You see, as you study history, you see the judgment of God falling upon nations and people. We see that throughout history. But the sentence goes on to say, but seldom enough to let us know that there is a judgment hereafter, which means that all the judgment is not completed here and now. There is a judgment to come. So that's Calvin's point, uh, too, that, um, as Calvin uh, puts it, the full proof of his rule will appear at the last judgment. There we'll see how our king has perfectly protected his church and how he has judged and at the last judgment completes the judgment of the wicked. As Francis Schaeffer used to put it, there will be a balancing of the books. That hasn't happened yet. Books are not close to being balanced. But eventually there will be a balancing of the books. And everything will be set right. Right, that's the second uh, office. The, the third office is the office of priest. The work of Christ in reconciliation. The office of king has to do with the actual bestowal of every spiritual good. The office of priest has to do with the removal of spiritual evil. King brings to us spiritual good. And the priest takes away sin, reconciles us to God. Calvin makes the point that Christ was anointed both priest and sacrifice for sin. So here there is something uh, unique. You have the Old Testament prophets, you have Christ as prophet, you have the Old Testament kings, you have Christ as king, and the Old Testament priests, you have Christ as priest, but the Old Testament priests were not both priest and sacrifice. But um, with Christ we have both priest and Sacrifice. By his holiness and by his sacrifice, he blots out our guilt and reconciles us to God. That is, his work is sacrifice. As priest, we have his work of intercession. By his pleading, we obtain favor. So as priest, Christ died as a sacrifice and his priest Christ intercedes before the Father 
that his sacrificial work of reconciliation bring us into favor with God. In his uh, commentary on Matthew 27:12, Calvin has a, a beautiful illustration, I think, of the relation between Christ's reconciliation and his intercession, the two parts of his priestly office, reconciliation and intercession. In this passage, Calvin describes the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And there he says, Jesus remained silent before Pilate in order that ever after he might speak for us. So in remaining silent before Pilate, he accepts the judgment that is meted out upon him by the Romans and uh, dies for our sins. He doesn't object. He doesn't try to escape it. But uh, because he remained silent before Pilate, he's now able to speak ever after uh, for us. Commentary on 1 John 2.1 Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. So it's Christ's death and then his intercession which is the continual application of his death to our salvation. Christ is his priest not only to render the Father favorable toward us but also to receive us as his companions in this great office. That is 2.15.6. In other words, just as there is an element in which we are involved in proclamation, Christ's work as prophet, so there is a part of Christ's work as priest that involves us as well. That is not reconciliation, of course, but it is intercession. And uh, this is one place in the Institutes where the Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of believers uh, comes forth. That is not as clearly set forth in Calvin as it is in Luther. For Luther, that's a a major theme. In Calvin, it's certainly important, and we find it from time to time, uh, as we do here in 2.15.6. Christ is priest, not only to render the Father favorable toward us, but also to receive us as his companions in this great office. He intercedes, we intercede. Okay, any questions on the threefold office before we move on to chapter 16? Is this pretty much the extent of Calvin speaking on the priesthood of all believers? No, there are, there are other places, but uh, not too often in the institutes. I think we'll see, we'll see some other places um, in book three and book four, and I'll try to point that out as we come to it. And you can find... Um, Calvin's treatment of this idea in the commentaries as well. But uh, there's not a major section or chapter in the Institutes devoted to it. But uh, Calvin certainly agreed with Luther, I think, that, that all believers are priests. And we are to serve as, in this context, as intercessors, as uh, Christ is our intercessor in heaven. 
Okay, let's look at uh, chapter 16 then. Christ as our Redeemer. He can move right from Christ as priest to Christ as Redeemer. question that uh, Calvin begins with is, how did Christ accomplish redemption for us? And his answer is, by the whole course of his obedience, 2.16.5, by the whole course of his obedience. That means incarnation, earthly life, and death. That's the whole course of his obedience. But especially, Calvin says, his obedience unto death. The later Reformed tradition will divide that into the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Usually, theologians refer the active obedience of Christ to his life when he is obeying the law, obeying the will of the Father for us and his passive obedience to his death. And he accepts and agrees to and embraces death. I'm not particularly fond of that distinction because it seems to me that there is active obedience in his death as well. It's not just that he surrenders to death, but he takes it upon himself. He dies. It's not that he's killed, but he offers himself as a sacrifice. It's not totally that he is killed. If we say that, we haven't said everything. He has embraced death. And in his active obedience, there's a certain passiveness, too, in that uh, he accepts the sufferings and struggles that uh, God has assigned to him. So people probably will continue to uh, use that uh, distinction, although I'm not sure that it is particularly helpful. But uh, Christ accomplished redemption for us uh, by the whole course of his obedience. Here it is that Calvin uh, gets into his exposition of the Apostles' Creed, which summarizes um, what um, Christ did for us. Calvin says, the creed passes at once in the best order from the birth of Christ to his death and resurrection, wherein the whole of perfect salvation consists. So he doesn't find fault with the creed. But when you think about it, it is interesting that the life of Christ is omitted in the Apostles' Creed. We say, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. But um, what place does the life of Christ get in the Apostles' Creed? Well, I guess we would say a comma. <laughs> a comma or a semicolon, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So we go from his incarnation to his uh, suffering on the cross, but um, his life is not mentioned. But uh, Calvin says the remainder of the obedience of Christ is not excluded. 
Calvin wants to say that even though there is not a, an actual statement in the Apostles' Creed that talks about the obedience of Christ throughout his life, it's not excluded. Paul embraced it all from the beginning to the end. In Philippians 2, 7, and 8, he took the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant. In a sense, we could say the creed this way, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, he took the form of a servant and was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Calvin doesn't suggest that we add those words to the creed, but uh, we can certainly think of those words as we recite uh, the Apostles' Creed. You just uh, go through Calvin's uh, treatment of the creed here, not in detail, but uh, to point out a few things of interest as we move along. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. The point that Calvin wants to make here is that there was not one, but two verdicts given at the trial of Jesus. Christ allowed himself to be condemned before a mortal man because he willed to deliver us from the penalty to which we were subject as sinners. So, one verdict is guilty. You're guilty. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, pronounced guilty by Pilate and the Jews, and crucified on the cross, and Christ accepted that, allowed himself to be condemned, because it was this way in which he could provide for us our salvation. But, Calvin says, there's another verdict given there, and that's innocent. Now, nobody speaks that in Jerusalem, but from his shining innocence, it was obvious that he was burdened with another sin rather than his own. As Christ moves through the trial and the execution, Calvin sees his shining innocence set forth in such a way that even though he's guilty, he's guilty because of the sins of the world that have been laid upon him. Two verdicts, guilty for our sake, but innocent in himself. He was crucified. Christ made himself subject to the cross. Calvin talks about the cross as being a place of shame. So he embraced the shame there. Very depths of degradation. But, as under the two verdicts, under Pontius Pilate, Pilate's verdict, and you might say God's verdict, even though the Father turned from Christ, it was as if the Father turned from Christ. Calvin explains it. Won't go back into the extra Calvinisticum, but it does come into play here as well. 
but um, he's crucified, made himself subject to the cross. It's full of shame, but he changed it into, as Calvin puts it, a triumphal chariot. So there, there are two ways to look at these things, Calvin says. You look at the trial, you see a man being condemned as guilty, crucified for for his guilt, but you really see shining innocence. And then you look at the cross, you see a place full of uh, degradation and shame, uh, but it's transformed into a triumphal chariot. I think we, we have continual illustrations of that in the way we use the cross today. It's we don't think of it much as a place of degradation because that adorns our buildings, this chapel, and people wear it, uh, it's jewelry, and treasure it as a wonderful symbol of the Christian faith. But that was because Christ changed what was very ignoble and shameful into something triumphant and wonderful. And then the creed goes on to say, he was dead and buried. Why does it do that? Because, Calvin said, in every respect, he took our place to pay the price of redemption. So he dies and he's buried because he takes our place in what we deserve, death and burial. Well, those are rather straightforward expressions of the creed, although I do think Calvin gives uh, an interpretation which is um, full of um, insights and enables us to repeat the creed with more appreciation and understanding. But the next uh, phrase is the the, uh, disputed one, and we need to Look to see what uh, Calvin does with it. Descended into hell. Uh, Calvin thinks that this part of the creed is an essential part of the creed. Just reading yesterday an article from a theologian uh, who said it's best to leave this out now because we don't believe it. And uh, this is an evangelical theologian who just said descended into hell is not um, proper understanding of what Christ did. But uh, Calvin doesn't agree with that. He says it's a matter of no small moment in bringing about redemption. Which means, I think, that Calvin sees descended into hell as the most important part of the creed. It's true that... The phrase descended into hell uh, was not uh, part of the earliest forms of the Apostles' Creed. Yet uh, one one writer before 650 who suggests that it could be included in the Creed, but apparently he only uh, used it to mean that Christ was buried, which repeats what has already been said. Died and buried, descended into hell buried. But uh, it's not until about 650, sometime in the 7th century, that the phrase descended into hell 
uh, becomes uh, affixed to the creed. And you know the creed goes back to early 3rd century in Rome, so it takes a long time for this particular uh, phrase to be added. I think we would say, however, that the idea that Christ descended into hell uh, was fairly common in the church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd centuries and down to Calvin's time. What was that idea, that traditional view? Well, it was this, that there was a literal descent of Christ to the world of the dead between his death and resurrection. Died on the cross, went down into hell, and then he's resurrected and ascends uh, to the Father. What did he do when he was in hell? People had different ideas about that, but sum it up in a number of ways. He, he preached repentance and rescued prisoners. Some people think that is a reference to Old Testament believers who did not go directly to heaven until Christ descended to hell or to the place of the dead. There's some dispute as to exactly what hell means here. Does it mean the place of the dead or does it mean the place of eternal punishment? But um, the old view, the traditional view, was that Christ went and preached repentance, rescued believers, and triumphed over Satan. This is sometimes called the harrowing of hell, which was a great uh, theme in medieval art. Yet uh, many, many pictures of Christ going down to hell and tearing the place up the howling of hell. Or you get it in Dante in the Divine Comedy, many writings and particularly art uh, of the medieval period shows a literal descent of Christ in his body as he goes to hell and triumphs over hell. Well, Calvin doesn't take that... uh, line of interpretation. You might say that Calvin demythologizes the statement. Because Calvin says what the phrase means is Christ's spiritual torment on the cross. Or as Calvin puts it, that invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he underwent in the sight of God. Crucified, dead, and buried, that, that sets forth, you might say, the external facts of Christ being placed on the cross and dying as a result of that experience. And he's buried. But there is also the phrase descended into hell, which doesn't speak of the external suffering, but the burden that he was bearing in himself as a result of his bearing uh, the sins of the world. Calvin calls this a harsher and more difficult struggle than with common death. In other words, what Christ struggled with on the cross was far more, far, far more than what you and I would struggle with if we had been crucified. I mean, you can imagine the, the anguish and the agony of that experience. But 
there was something much harsher and more difficult that Calvin says Christ struggled with. And that was uh, his bearing the sins of the world. And that's, that's what makes the cross redemptive. You see, without the expression descended into hell interpreted in this way, you have objective facts, but you have no theological interpretation of those facts. This is the setting forth of the redemptive nature of the cross. So the traditional view is chronological. The victory is already won on the cross, and then Christ makes a journey after that of triumph to the underworld. But in Calvin's view, it's all simultaneous. As he hangs on the cross, he descends into hell. The descent is the victory. It's not that the victory is won and then the descent takes place. It's that as he dies, as he bears our sins, he dies. And the descent takes place as he struggles on the cross. And that is the victory. He illustrated this way from the catechism for the Church of Geneva. This is a catechism that Calvin wrote, and you get, you get it uh, very clearly set forth here. The minister asked, as for what immediately follows that he descended into hell, what does this mean? This is a catechism leading children through the Apostles' Creed. And the children were taught to reply that he endured not only common death, which is the separation of the soul from the body, but also the pains of death, as Peter calls them. Calvin believes that pains of death in Acts 2.24 has to do with the spiritual torment. Answer goes on. By this word, I understand the fearful agonies with which his soul was tormented. And then the next statement from the minister, tell me the cause and manner of this. And the answer, because in order to make satisfaction for sinners, he arraigned himself before the tribunal of God. It was requisite that his conscience be tormented by such agony as if as if he were forsaken by God. Notice the as if he were forsaken by God. He had the sense of being forsaken. He had the experience of being forsaken, but he really wasn't forsaken. And Calvin does apply that to us because that's our experience too, isn't it? We often have the sense of being forsaken, but we're not forsaken as the second person of the Trinity was not forsaken by God on the cross, but he did feel that he was forsaken. Julian? If I'm interpreting things correctly, Kelvin would view Christ descended to hell while he was on the cross in the process of dying, and as he died, then his descent into hell was complete. That's right. <clears throat> yes. 
That's right. There's no there's no geographical um, movement then. Well, there is that three day period or parts of three days when he continues uh, under the power of death in the grave. You know, when you compare what what Calvin is doing here with the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a difference. Um, Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't teach the literal descent into the place of the dead for preaching to Old Testament saints or powering hell. But the larger catechism, question 50, says in its answer, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So the larger catechism understands the words he descended into hell is the fact that, uh, that Christ died, was buried, and continued under the power of death uh, till the uh, third day. Now, what do we make of all this? It seems to me that it's probably quite likely, quite true, that the early traditional interpretation or meaning of the words he descended into hell were the words that the meaning that should be affixed to the Apostles' Creed. So when Calvin comes to those words, he doesn't say, we'll drop them out because I don't, I don't uh, agree with the traditional interpretation, but he, he changes the meaning of the words and keeps them in. And uh, you could say that even if you like Calvin's view, and I think almost everybody would, you could say that's not what the words meant. So we should take them out. I think that's Dr. Williams' view. Words did not mean that. I don't know if he says we should take them out or not. But um, he doesn't think Calvin has given the right interpretation of those words. They originally meant something else. Calvin doesn't give us any feeling about what he's doing here. He simply says, takes the traditional statement of the creed and then reinterprets the words in what I would consider uh, a biblical uh, position. And my, my personal feeling is that uh, uh, Calvin has convinced me uh, that we need something in the Apostles' Creed to say what he's saying when he gives his interpretation of the descent into hell. And so I'm quite happy to take the traditional words, reinterpret them in the Calvinist fashion, and go on using them. But it's quite, uh, it's quite an issue in some churches, and you'll probably be asked about this, or you'll have to decide uh, when you're a pastor if, uh, what form of the Apostles' Creed you're going to use. But uh, this will give you uh, some insight, at least, into uh, Calvin's uh, interpretation. There are a half dozen verses or so that traditional interpretation could possibly point to, uh, particularly uh, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, 
I'm not going to try to exegete those verses. Uh, you can you can look at uh, this uh, as you have interest. But uh, that passage of First Peter three eighteen through twenty, which is undoubtedly the uh, primary uh, text, talks about. Uh, Christ, who in the Spirit went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which aforetime were disobedient, and so on. Uh, I've studied Calvin's uh, exegesis of that passage, and it is pretty complicated. He's trying to to not uh, use it in the way that it would support the traditional view of uh, Christ ascending to hell. He calls it this intricate passage. And I think the main point he's making there is that Christ went by means of his spirit uh, to the prison. But um, it's not altogether clear exactly where that was or what that was. It seems to me that Augustine uh, perhaps has the better interpretation of that passage, although Augustine doesn't uh, argue for this. He simply proposes it that... um, the First Peter 3 passage is, is not uh, referring to something Christ did between his death and resurrection, but something he did through the Spirit at the time of Noah. Christ preached by the Spirit at the time of Noah uh, to people and uh, actually preached through Noah. So it would be Christ's prophetic office coming forth here as he sets forth his truth through the preaching of the righteous uh, Noah. Okay, any further questions on that, Julian? Are other examples of our early church fathers they said something and we think they meant one thing at that time, but what they said is really good, but That's right. So we're not, you know, we're not dealing with biblical words here. So we wouldn't say Calvin is uh, playing loose with biblical words. I expect you could find other things in the church fathers that would be analogous. At the moment, I can't point to any anything that would be exactly uh, in this this category because this is a, a traditional statement, uh, becomes part of the creed, the church has inherited it, and yet um, people have not exactly known what they meant when they were saying this. Now, the rest of the creed is so clear, and we're united on it, but this point uh, is, is uh, quite uh, different. Well, let's go on through... Uh, the other points, and then we'll come to chapter 17. The third day he rose again from the dead. The substitutionary work of Christ doesn't end in his death. Our restoration to life is completed by his resurrection. The Bible often connects death and resurrection. Galvin does here. third day he rose again from the dead. Ascended into heaven.
by which he truly inaugurated his kingdom, Calvin says in 2.16.14. But uh, Calvin also wants to make the point that he descended into heaven in such a way that he did not leave us. Or, as Calvin puts it, 2.16.14, or he left us in such a way that his presence might be more useful to us. Still have the presence of Christ through the Spirit. Presence of Christ before the ascension into heaven was different from the presence of Christ after the ascension into heaven. We sometimes think it would have been wonderful to live in the days of Christ and be able to see him and talk to him and listen to him. But only a limited number of people could do that because Christ in his body was at one place at one time. But now he is with us, each of us, and every Christian, always and everywhere. So he left us in such a way that his presence might be more useful to us. Just as the incarnation did not remove Christ from heaven, so his ascension did not remove Christ from earth. And I think we see the extra Calvinisticum come into play again here, that Christ also exists apart from his body. His body is in heaven, but Christ exists apart from his body, and so he can be with us, can be present in the Lord's Supper, as we'll see later, apart from the body, Calvin says, which is in one place in heaven. When he leaves heaven to come to earth and is born of the virgin, this is Christ, but also beyond the body, second person of the Trinity exists. At that time, he had not abandoned heaven and he had not forsaken uh, the work that he was engaged in when he became man. And now that he has returned uh, to heaven, he has not left us because as the omnipresent God, uh, he is everywhere, but his body is not everywhere. It's a big point when we come to the Lord's Supper because that will distinguish Calvin's view from that of Luther. And he is seated at uh, the right hand of the Father, where he is invested with lordship over heaven and earth, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Our whole salvation, Calvin says, is comprehended in Christ, which is the way that he sums up his treatment of the Apostles' Creed. Then we have uh, chapter 17, How Christ Merited Salvation for Us. This may have been something you had never thought about before or worried about, but uh, it was something that uh, people in Calvin's day were asking. So he deals with it. How does Christ merit salvation for us? In other words, if salvation is by grace, 
Why do we have merit involved? Christ merited, Calvin would say, Christ merited grace for us. Certainly would say that. But he says this too. Certain perversely subtle men teach that any mention of merit obscures God's grace. So if you talk about merit, you have undercut grace. If God saves us by grace, then why does there have to be merit? Calvin's answer, 217.1, is this. It is absurd to set Christ's merit against God's mercy. You've got two things here. You've got God's mercy and you've got Christ's merit. For it is a common rule that a thing subordinate to another is not in conflict with it. Now, he uses a kind of a statement from logic here to answer this. When you have God's mercy, uh, that's, that's the um, main point. And then there's a sub-point, which is Christ's merit. In other words, God's mercy was to sin Christ, and God's mercy was Christ's coming in that unity of the Father and the Son in the work of redemption to merit life for us. Calvin says there's no conflict if you have the main point and the subordinate point. It's God's mercy. This is how God's mercy was accomplished for us. God chooses to save us by Christ's merit. Christ, by his obedience, truly acquired and merited grace for us uh, with the Father. When Calvin discusses the work of our salvation, he says that Christ was able to merit our salvation because God willed it. This was the way that God had willed that we would be saved. Jesus Christ was unable to merit anything but by God's good pleasure. God's decree and God's will. But at the same time, he speaks of Christ's obedience. By Christ's obedience, he truly acquired and merited grace for us with the Father. So you could say the merit comes because God said it will be this way. And the merit comes because Christ obeyed. So there's true desert. He earned our salvation by the whole course of his obedience, by his perfectly sinless life, and by his redemptive death. Okay, let's say a few words of uh, evaluation, and we'll be able to uh, complete uh, this. Robert Peterson, in his uh, book, Christ and 
or Calvin on the Atonement of Christ, which is really a marvelous book. I've, I was using that a long time before. I knew Robert Peterson, um, and uh, it's recently been reprinted and, and uh, is available again. But uh, Dr. Peterson says it's difficult to find another figure in the history of the Christian church who brought together as much data in his soteriology as Calvin did. That's from Peterson's Calvin's Doctrine of the Atonement. Uh, That one is on page 87. Mm -hmm. Comprehensive treatment of the doctrine of the work of Christ. A threefold office we've talked about that uh, is very important. Anselmian view with distinctive emphases, justice and love, Christ's atoning life. Perhaps uh, that should be stated a little bit differently. I used to think that Calvin was right in the right in the history of doctrine following Anselm, his Cur Deus Homo, why the God man. I think it's probably more accurate to say that in broad outlines, Calvin approximates the teaching of Anselm, but Calvin's own treatment is somewhat distinctive. He doesn't uh, follow Anselm uh, entirely. For one thing, Anselm was concerned primarily to show how through the atonement the justice of God was satisfied. Calvin certainly speaks of this often, but Calvin's focus is at least as much on the love of God in the atonement as it is on the satisfaction of God's justice in the atonement. I think uh, a good study could, good PhD dissertation, if you're looking for one someday, could be uh, studying Anselm and the Anselmic view of the atonement and how much Calvin uh, follows that and where uh, he Uh, diverges uh, from that. And then the uh, last point, uh, the extent of the atonement. Did Calvin uh, believe in and set forth uh, limited atonement or universal atonement? And there's been ongoing debate on this. You can get uh, people writing on both sides of this, but uh, I'm convinced that uh, Robert Peterson is right when he says uh, that um, we just can't say whether Calvin held limited atonement or not. There are some statements in Calvin which certainly set forth limited atonement or particular atonement. There are other statements in Calvin that set forth what we could call a universal atonement. Calvin certainly believed in the universal offer of the gospel. That's not the same thing as universal atonement. But um, either Calvin just did not find this an issue. It was not an issue in his time. It becomes an issue later, the time of the Synod of Dort. And, you know, when a theological matter is an issue, then you have to be very precise and take sides and decide what you're going to say, unless you 
just say, I don't know. I think that's perhaps one reason that Calvin doesn't answer this question, uh, and that was people were not asking this question. So he doesn't answer it. Another answer, perhaps, is that Calvin is so concerned to be biblical that when a verse seems to go toward limited atonement, he'll go that way. And when a verse seems to go toward universal atonement, he'll go that way. And um, either has no way of putting those together or just doesn't um, think of doing it. It's rather typical, I think, of Calvin to take a certain line of biblical thought out as far as he can and then another line of biblical thought and uh, fail to make a logical connection when he feels the scripture doesn't really uh, give him the, the right uh, uh, to do that. So unless somebody comes up with a lot of new light on Calvin on this topic, I think we'll have to uh, say that, uh, that Calvin can be interpreted both ways and that there are texts in the Institutes and in the commentaries uh, that could lead uh, in both uh, directions. Okay, we're ready now for book three. And um, next time we'll have uh, a first chapter in book three on the Holy Spirit. That chapter was added in 1559, so it's a very important chapter for Calvin. And really all of book three is about the Holy Spirit. But you have a chapter on the Holy Spirit. And then the uh, rest of uh, book three, uh, the application of the redemption of Christ by the work of the Spirit. And uh, we'll start with faith. Holy Spirit and faith are are the topics for uh, next Tuesday. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.